As you're finding your seat, take your Bible. Romans chapter 8 is where we are this morning. Romans chapter 8. I could sing that song for days. Jesus paid it all, man. That is a phenomenal song to sing. Um, March Madness is coming up soon. Um, how many of you are fans of March Madness NCAA tournament? Um, how many of you are fans of the UNC Tar Heels? I will pray extra hard for you this morning. Um, go Irish. Just kidding. Actually, I'm not kidding. Go Irish for that matter. Um, March Madness is coming up soon. And um, back <clears throat> years ago in 1993, there was a national championship game that was played between uh, Michigan and UNC. How many of you remember that? That game, big, big, big game because you had uh, Carolina, who was a really good team that year, but then you had Michigan, who had um, the talented Fab Five. Now, what those guys were, they were, at that year, in 93, they were sophomores, but they had been five freshmen who came in the year prior to that. All of them decorated high school recruits. They were all extremely good players, especially Chris Weber. Chris Weber, phenomenal player. Uh, came in, they came in, went to the national championship in 1992, lost that year to Duke, by the way, and then the very next year, they go back to the national championship game to play North Carolina. They're in Louisiana, they're playing at the Superdome, everybody's watching this, I still have this tape of this game at home for you teenagers, the tape is a thing about that big, and it's about that thick, and you put it in a VCR. You have to have your parents explain what a VCR is, but that's, that's what I still have that. So I've watched this before, almost uh, remember many parts about this game, but the game's back and forth all game long. You have these guys, man, and they're playing hard. You have Michigan, and they pull ahead at some points by about nine or ten points, and you think this game, you know, is going to be over. Michigan's going to wipe out Carolina. And then um, Carolina would come back and bring the game back close, and it's just this kind of game the whole entire game, exactly what you want in a national championship game against North Carolina and against this team, Michigan, who is phenomenal. What happens, though, is with about 15 seconds to go, um, North Carolina is at the line, and, and they get, the guy gets fouled. He goes to the free throw line, shoots one, makes the first free throw, puts Carolina up by two. The very next free throw, the guy from Carolina misses. The ball bounces off. Chris Weber grabs the rebound. When he does, he actually walks. But when he walks, the referees don't call it. So he, you can tell he's kind of frantic. He's only a 19-year-old guy. He runs down the court, dribbles straight to the corner, the exact thing you're not supposed to do. And what does he do? He turns around, and he calls timeout. The only problem is there were none left. And what happens when you call a timeout and there are no timeouts left, uh, that's a technical foul. So Carolina, up by two, gets two free throws and then gets the ball back, which essentially sealed the game. The best player in the game, the most hyped player in that whole tournament, dribbles down the court, calls a timeout, and makes the worst mistake of his life. He walks out of there, his, his head is just low, people have their hands on his back and, and, and on the back of his head, and he walks out the press conference, he's in that, he hardly wants to say a word in the press conference. And even today, the, you know, whenever you talk about a, a, a game mishap, Chris Weber is the butt end of a lot of those jokes. But what happened is, is we understand in that moment, you know, you're in, a, you're in right after the game. You don't want to talk about that. I wouldn't want to talk about that. But it's kind of funny. ESPN last year did this um, documentary on the Fab Five. 
And out of the Fab Five, those five freshmen who had been really, really awesome, went to two straight national championships, all of them appeared in that movie, in that documentary, except Chris Weber. Now, why would he decline showing up to talk about being, to talk about that game, to talk about those five guys? Why, why would he not show up? Because he still feels not felt, he's still, 21 years later, after this mishap in a game, feels the guilt of what he had done. He feels the fact that people make fun of him when, he, when he's, he's, a, he's a commentator in some games, and people still talk about that. And he can kind of talk about it a little bit now, but even 21 years later, he didn't have the courage to come out and talk about that game that happened years and years and years ago. He feels the guilt of public opinion that said, hey, you messed this game up. You took a championship away from your team because of what you had done. People said it was his fault, whether it was or not. We don't know. People said it was his fault, and he took the fall for it. He felt the guilt from that, and not just right after the game, but for years and years and years and years to come. That's something that has loomed over his head for that long. And I think like Chris Weber, many of us may walk in this room this morning and feel some of those same feelings. You feel um, guilt and this condemning feeling because of what you did last night or just this weekend. You feel these condemning feelings because of the way that you talked to your kids this past week. Or the way that you treated your spouse just yesterday. You feel these feelings of guilt because of the lustful thoughts that have gone through your mind or the web pages that you have looked at. We feel these same condemning feelings saying, Look at what you've done. But thankfully, this text this morning, Romans 8 1 through 4, tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This text is written to the believer. And although written to the follower of Christ, it is applicable to everyone sitting in this room, whether or not you know Jesus or you don't. These truths can be true of you this morning. There are two kinds of you sitting in here this morning. One, you come in here and the weight and guilt of your sin is still on you because you have yet to follow Christ as your Savior. You'll find out this morning that guilt can be lifted That penalty has been abolished and you can have assurance and hope. Or, you're sitting here this morning and you know Jesus. Maybe you've just given your life to Christ last week. Or, you've known him for 40 years. Many times we can forget the truth that is in Romans 8, 1. We're going to hear this morning some good news. Some news that may even seem a little uh, scandalous. Some news that will hopefully cause the weight of your guilt to be lifted. Paul spent, as Emily read, the last part of Romans 7 telling us how wretched sinfully we are. What does he say in Romans 7, 24? Wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Look at verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus has saved us from our sin if you are his follower. And there are three things that we need to understand this morning. 
But before we even get to those, we've got to ask the question, <clears throat> if I am now a follower of Christ, how am I able to live as a Christian free from all the wrong that I've done? The answer is in Romans 8, the, through the Spirit of God. Through the Holy Spirit, the Spirit frees from guilt's condemnation, the Spirit frees from sin's domination, and thirdly, we're going to understand this morning, the Spirit frees for life transformation. Let's look at Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin had condemned us. Our penalty was death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Before Christ, our status was guilty as charged. We were held accountable for the wrong things that we had done. The idea of condemned there literally means like the gavel in a courtroom had dropped and you were found guilty for your sin. We, we take part in this sometimes whenever there's a high-profile court case on TV and, you know, you watch any, any news network and they're covering it and we, we get involved in this. You know, our, we, we see somebody, we see this body of evidence and we're just like, man, she needs to be found guilty. Or look at all that evidence. Like, of course, he needs to be thrown in jail. But understand this, the wages of our sin is death. When our filthy lives are looked at before a holy God, that is our verdict. We are guilty before God. But this says, but now your guilty status has been removed and our verdict has been reversed. Jesus says in John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Being in Christ means you are now a follower of Christ. You are in his family. Those feelings that you often feel that tell you you don't add up or, or those feelings that cause you to feel this overwhelming guilt of past sins are unnecessary because as a child of God, you are no longer to worry about your status due to your sin because Jesus has saved you. Verse 2 says this, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Understand this, this, this is a marvelous truth this morning. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is what we just sang about. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson state. Our sin caused Jesus to die, but Jesus died for us so that our guilty status is then removed. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You once walked in darkness and now you're in light. We once lived in shame and now there is none. We once had this condemning guilt, but now we have a new identity. Our problem sometimes is that we forget we've been saved by grace through faith. We forget that our salvation was based on Jesus' merit alone. It had nothing to do with our ability to save ourselves. We fall back many times into this place of feeling condemned and feeling guilty for all the things that we've done. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a Welsh preacher of the 20th century, said, Our trouble is that we forget the truth of verse 1. When we forget that there is therefore now no condemnation, what, what does that cause us to do? It causes us to be defensive. Our defensive in our relationships, it causes us to feel like we've got to prove ourselves. It causes us um, to be very, very sensitive to criticism. It causes a lack of, uh, lack of confidence in relationships. It causes a lack of joy in prayer and in worship. 
If you feel that God's condemnation is still weighing on you, how can you have joy when you come before him to pray? How can we have joy in worship singing the songs if we've not understood the truth that our condemnation has been lifted because Jesus took it? That's what brings us joy. Forgetting we're not condemned also causes us to to live a less holy life. Why? Because we try to live a life out of fear and out of duty rather than out of gratitude and joy. What causes us to grow in our relationship with God is living a life of gratitude and joy because our penalty, our punishment has been lifted. But it's hard to do that sometimes in our culture, which is so embedded with works righteousness, because what happens? You do something to mess up one day at work, and then for weeks you walk on eggshells because you're afraid of what your boss is going to say to you. But guess what? God is not this way. There's nothing that you and I did to gain our salvation. Therefore, there's nothing you and I can do to lose our salvation. Jesus took our condemnation and our punishment and traded it for forgiveness. We've been forgiven based on what Jesus has done, not based on anything that we can do. So we don't have an attitude of guilt because guilt's condemning feelings are free from us. But I'll tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean now that you're just free to sin because you are forgiven. What does Paul say in Romans 7? Should we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. No way should we do that. Why? Because that points to the fact that we've not understood the grace of God in the first place. This idea of um, God will forgive me anyway just points to either lack of relationship or a life lived in open rebellion toward God. This is not what God has called us to do. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation which frees us to then live a life for Christ that we'll look at in just a moment. Free from condemnation means we've been redeemed. You've been bought back by the blood of Jesus. Free from condemnation means that we are possessors of eternal life. It means that we're recipients of grace. Romans 5 says we were enemies with God, but now that Jesus has taken our place on the cross, there has been made peace between us and God. We're spiritually alive and we're eternally saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ. But the second thing we've got to understand this morning is this. There is now no condemnation, but often we still live under sin's domination. But our second truth is this, the spirit frees from sin's domination. Look at verse 2 and 3. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. The spirit of God now resides in you and has the power and ability to help us overcome sin. The law of sin and death had dominated for centuries. Why? Because the law can only point out the wrong that you've done. There is no law in here that can save us. It can only condemn and convict. Let's say you go uh, to court because of a ticket that you received and you go and pay it. That law didn't save you. That law only had the opportunity to show you that you are insufficient to obey the rules. You see, God gave Moses the Torah, which was his law. It was, it was Israel's moral and civil rules and regulations that they were to live by. The only problem was that in order not to be a lawbreaker, you had to keep everything perfectly. So uh, in Israel's day, they wouldn't have had cars, but if the speed limit said 55 and they drove 57, they broke a civil law, which just showed they are incapable of keeping God's law. And you may say, what's the big deal? Because I'm not an Israelite. 
Those laws aren't my laws, but guess what? It is a big deal because that law also showed God's moral righteousness. That law showed that God is perfect, that nothing was wrong with his law, that he is perfectly moral, he is perfectly righteous, he doesn't have any moral imperfections. God has never nor will never sin, he's never cheated, he's never lied, he's never gossiped, he's never murdered, he's never lusted. God has not done those things. Those are against his character. Those are against who he is. God is perfect and sinless. Therefore, he takes sin seriously. God takes sin super seriously. The problem is we came up short. When we look at ourselves in light of who God is, we begin to see that we are liars, cheaters, moral failures, people who lust, gossips, sexually immoral, Worriers. Then we realize that measured up to God's standard, we ultimately fail. When we are measured against who God is and then see that He is perfect and He has given His law to make His people perfect, we look and say, God, how can we be perfect? And the answer is, we, we can't. We can't be perfect. The law was weakened by our flesh, this passage says. The flesh is our sinful nature. The law was weakened by our sinful nature. We couldn't keep it. God's law points to our insufficiency to keep God's moral standards. And because we couldn't, guess what? He did. Because we couldn't keep God's law, this passage says in verse 3, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Listen to these words. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. We couldn't keep God's law perfectly. We're moral failures, so guess what he did? He sent Jesus to keep his law to a T. Jesus came to this earth in the likeness of sinful flesh. Notice it didn't say Jesus was sinful. Jesus never once sinned. It said he was like sinful flesh. In other words, he was a human being. God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus was 100% human. He kept God's law perfectly. So when he died in our place as our representative because of our sinful human nature, our punishment was transferred onto Jesus and his righteousness was transferred to our account. When you followed Christ, If you know Jesus this morning, that is true of you. That is true of me. We haven't been able to do anything to measure up to God's standards. But Jesus, who was God, was also human. And he measured up to God's standards perfectly so that when he died, he died in our place. He was our substitute. And because he died in our place and for us, God's anger towards sin was poured out on Jesus So that then we not only have no condemnation, but we are freed from the dominating power of sin in our lives. We are freed from its dominating power. The law bound us and told us what we couldn't do, but God came and set us free because he had to. Since Jesus died for your sin, we can't be tried for it. There's no condemnation because Jesus took our condemnation, and there's also Jesus took the power, the dominating power of sin, and destroyed that as well. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, that is, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. 
That's just it. The law of the spirit of life in verse two is the gospel, which sets us free from sin's control. You say, Ader, I, I still struggle with sin. It's not that sin is completely gone, but we aren't gripped by its dominating power any longer because if you know Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. The law of the spirit of life is the gospel. Our sinful nature often has, is like this cloud, this dark cloud that looms over our head, raining down insults and saying, you, you can't make this. You can't overcome what I'm going to cause you to do. But because of the gospel, that cloud has been destroyed. And you can look and say, I have the power of holy God living inside of me and you can't overcome me today. Now, that doesn't mean we won't be susceptible to sin. It's, there's still going to be times when we struggle. There's still going to be times when it's difficult, but we've been set free from its captivity. Back in, in the Civil War, um, as it was ending, Abraham Lincoln, who um, had make, made sure that the Emancipation Proclamation had taken place, he rode to a town, and when he did, people just flocked to him. And these were slaves who, who or had been slaves, and now they were free, and they just flocked straight to him. And, and he looked at them, and he said these words. My poor friends, these, these are people who had been captive to other people for years, treated harshly, treated poorly, treated with no respect, just like our sin deals with us. But Abe Lincoln said, my poor friends, you are free, free as air. You can cast off the name of slave and trample on it. Liberty is your birthright. According to this passage, this is the same of us because of what Jesus has done. This is the same thing that is true of us because he died on the cross for our sins. But the problem is, I'm afraid sometimes we go back to those things which hold us captive. Because it's difficult, because sin still calls our name. Sin still says, hey, come here, I want you to take part in this. And we go back to the alcohol that just strangles us. We go back to the pornography, to the drug addiction, to the approval addiction, to the worry that so entangles you. But you've been set free from that. It's like Andrew said in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, we've been set free to live in God's country. But over in Sin City, there is this outlaw who has no control in God's country, but it still calls our name. And sometimes we feel that we have to obey it, but we don't have to. It's still a powerful force, but we don't have to obey our sinful nature. So what do we got to do because of this? You've got to know that you aren't ultimately, if you're a follower of Christ, you aren't ultimately controlled by sin's dominating power. The Spirit has freed you from its control. It's still going to be a struggle until the day that we meet Jesus to live in this world. But you now have something living inside of you that is more powerful than that sin nature. What else could you do? Don't put yourself in situations that are going to cause you to fall to that sin. If you know that you struggle with, with a particular thing or a set of things, don't put yourself in a place that's going to cause you to struggle with those because that's one way for sin to just start dominating you again. As we already heard this morning about Celebrate Recovery, if you're in here and you're, and you're sitting here and you're like, you know what, this is something that I need to go to. Don't let this just slip by today. Go to it this Thursday. See one of these people outside of here. Because if you're struggling with an addiction or struggling with something that you can't get through, something that hangs you up, these people are here to help you. So we see this morning that our verdict's been removed, our guilt no longer looms over us. 
Sin, although it's a struggle, doesn't dominate us or, or the Spirit frees us not to be dominated by sin. But what's the third truth we've got to understand this morning? It's out of verse 4. The Spirit frees for life transformation. Verse 4 says this, In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk <clears throat> not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I think we often forget or not even realize that God didn't simply save us from eternal death and that be it. God didn't go on the ultimate rescue mission to simply save us from our sin and then it's over. The day that you give your life to Christ is not the ending point. It's actually the beginning point of a brand new life. What does Titus 2.14 say? Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. In other words, we were redeemed. We have been bought. Condemnation is now lifted, not just so that we're forgiven, so that we are God's people for him. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's goal was and is our holiness, not simply our forgiveness. God didn't save us to, from hell, from eternal death, and that be it. God saved us so we would serve him. God saved us so we would be his people. God saved us so that we would love him and serve him out of gratitude. Our goal Every single day, if you're a follower of Christ, our goal is Christ-likeness. Spiritual maturity, that's what our aim is. To grow up and to God, to Jesus' likeness. To be transformed every single day by his word. That's our goal, but we do that not out of fear and out of obligation and out of duty, but out of the fact that our condemnation has now been lifted. Tim Keller uses this analogy. I, I might have used it in here before, talking about a kid playing baseball. And it's so, so perfect for this text. Because there are two motivations that a kid could go and he could play in a baseball game for his, for, for his dad. One, he can go out and he can play. And every single swing, every time he tries to field a ground ball, everything he does is out of fear that when he walks off the field, his father will look at him and say, son, you messed up. That's pathetic. You need to try harder and do better than that. So every time he swings for the fences, what's his motivation for? Out of fear of rejection. But then there's a second motivation. The, the, the son could come to the dad, and the dad could say, hey, hey, come here. And he could look at him and say, son, no matter what happens today, no matter how you play, I love you. No matter what happens on the field, I love you so much. When that son goes to play on the field, is he trying to strike out? Well, no, that'd just be dumb. No, when he goes out, he's still swinging for the fences. He's still trying to field every single ground ball. He's still trying to do everything in his power to do well in that game. The only difference is the motivation is different. He's not playing out of fear of rejection. He is playing because he knows no matter what, his dad accepts him. That's our motivation for serving Jesus. That he took our rags in exchange we got his riches. That Jesus went through the torment of hell so that we could have the blessing of heaven. That he was sinfully cursed so that our sin nature could be forgiven. He was severely beaten so that we could be supremely saved. He was stripped naked so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. That's our motivation for serving God. That's our motivation for living for the Lord, that Jesus has saved us. Our condemnation has been lifted. Sin's domination has been taken. Therefore, we serve God based on those truths. 
That internal change, when we realize, wow, I am saved and it wasn't by anything that I could do, that must, hear me, that must result in external changes. Our lives now must be lived in stark contrast to what they once were. In 1999, Michael May, he was a a father of, of a couple of kids. He had a wife. He was 45 years old. And for 42 years, he had not been able to see. He had been blind, and he got a call one day that said, there's this new um, surgery that will somehow do some kind of transplant of your eyes, and you may be able to see. So he goes, and he takes part in that. And he, he has this surgery, and they wrap, they wrap bandages around his eyes. And when he gets out of the surgery, um, I don't know if it's been a day or two, and they take, finally take those bandages off, and he says, I finally saw light. I saw light. He said, he said I couldn't see things perfectly, but I saw, I saw some light. So what did he do because of that? He said that he could, if it, it took him long enough, but he could frame together pictures of what he was actually seeing. So it said that he would go in hotel lobbies, and he would go find the elevator just to match the buttons because he could finally see to go do that. It said he would go out and he would play baseball with his son, and it said he would, he would misjudge every single ball every single time. But the fact is, he would then go find the ball, throw it back to his son, only to misjudge it again. But he was trying his best. Now, was his sight in that moment perfect? By no means. But because his eyes had been fixed... Even though he was yet to be perfect, he was given his life over to this new way of living. He wasn't still living as though he was blind. Though he couldn't perfectly see, what had happened to his eyes changed the way he was living. He wasn't continuing to live as though he would walk around and say, Hey, somebody, somebody help me because I can't see. No, he was trying his best to, to live a different life because of what had been done. That's our motivation for following Christ. Knowing that our condemnation has been lifted, that sin no longer dominates us, and ultimately that causes us to say, God, I want to live for you because of what you've done. There's nothing I could do to save myself, but because you saved me, I'll give my life for you. Out of gratitude and out of love. So this morning, I said earlier, there are two kinds of people in the room this morning. If you don't know Jesus this morning, then you obviously can. You can take this morning and say, you know what, I've I've, I've heard messages like this, or maybe you haven't, and and you think about the fact that you are lost right now. The wages of your sin is death. You have no hope, but Jesus Christ, thankfully, has given you hope through dying on the cross for you, for your sin. You can receive him this morning. You can trust in his sacrifice this morning. Or you sit in here this morning and you are a believer, but you have forgotten the truth that you are no longer condemned. You've forgotten the fact that you have no condemnation looming over your head. There is nothing that you will do that will remove God's forgiveness from you. As we sing in just a moment, We'll sing the chorus that we sang a minute ago, Jesus paid it all. As we do that, this is your opportunity as a believer to praise him. Because there is no condemnation, that should always elicit praise. We look to God and we praise him for what he has done. Let's pray this morning.